This is I Choose Life, news and views sponsored by Indiana Right to Life and Right to Life of Northeast Indiana, committed to defending innocent human life for all people of all ages. I Choose Life, news and views is produced by Bot Radio Network in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Welcome to I Choose Life News and Views. This is Abigail Lorenzen. Happy to have you tuning into the program today. We have with us our guest, Jeremy Greenlee, who works with the Indiana Trafficking Victims Assistance Program and has all sorts of information to share with us about human trafficking, specifically in Indiana, which is something that I know I don't know a lot about, and I'm guessing many of you, our listeners, don't know much about it either. It seems like sort of a foreign thing that happens in India or happens in China or happens in, you know, these different continents. But no, it's actually happening here in Indiana and in Fort Wayne and in Indy. So... Jeremy's here to give us sort of a perspective on what's going on, but then also some things that you can do in your own lives to keep an eye out for especially kids, people under 24 years old who could possibly be trafficked, um, what those warning signs are. And then also the IVAP site has some resources as far as numbers that you can call or text helplines if you see some of those red flags. So, Jeremy, thanks for joining us today. Uh, thanks, Abigail. I'm uh, really glad to be here. This is not a topic that we cover very often. In fact, I'm not sure I've ever covered it on the radio program, um, but it is very much tied into the pro-life movement in a couple of different ways. But let's do a little introduction of you here for our audience. You have been working in, not specifically in trafficking, but in sort of this troubled youth adolescent psychology fields ever since undergrad. Yeah, that's right. What drew you to that in the first place? Yeah, I guess it was in undergrad. I was studying psychology and I had the opportunity to um, take some trips to different areas of the country and outside of the country. And I got exposed to uh, just grinding poverty for the first time in my life and coming from uh, my own background, uh, which is a pretty privileged background where I had came from an area where there's access to high-quality education and totally different than my experience intersecting with those people in poverty. It's really just what kind of drove me to this work, just feeling like I had all these opportunities in my life and, and not everybody has those same opportunities. And that was the first time I'd come face-to-face to that realization. And so I decided I wanted to uh, work to try to address those issues and those, those lack of opportunity among those that I had uh, intersected with. And so that's why I decided to get into this work. And you're an Indiana native. Did you want to come back to Indiana because of a sense of like community? This is where I'm from. These are my roots. I want to help these people. Or is that just where opportunity presented itself? Um, yeah, I think it was a little bit of both. I think, you know, knowing my own community and knowing that you don't have to travel across the world to see people that are in need. And so uh, just wanting to give back to my own community and, and use my skill set to do that. So uh, that's why I I started studying in the field that I did of psychology, and then I ended up doing uh, home-based case management and skills training for several years and uh, going into the homes, working with families and youth that were part of the you know, criminal justice system on probation, involved with Department of Child Services, and just working with those families. And it was really a helpful experience for me just to realize that some of the struggles that people face in our own communities are, a lot of it is attributed to the circumstances that they have to deal with that I never had to deal with when I was growing up. Yeah, so it's something that they can't control in the first place. Yeah, a lot of times there's challenges that they present to those families that, you know, are, are tough to deal with and they don't have a lot of resources to deal with them. So, you know, one of the avenues for providing those resources is through the uh, 
community health programs. That's what I did for about a little under a decade. And then I transitioned into doing this work in the anti-trafficking movement. And that was really came out of the work that we were doing when I was working in residential at the time. And we started to see more and more human trafficking cases where youth were actually being identified as trafficking cases. And it seemed like, from my perspective, there was a big need for more awareness and education on this issue. It's not like we weren't working with these individuals before. It's just now we were starting to identify them more. And uh, we needed some better education on how to work with them because there are some important factors to consider when we're working with survivors of trafficking, uh, just because of the nature of their exploitation. So that's kind of how I got into this work. I transitioned to the Indian Aid Services Association, uh, which is the employer that I work for now, and and I'm part of the Indian Aid Trafficking Victims Assistance Program. Yeah. Well, it seems like that's a little bit of a niche. Like, I don't think I run into very many people at the grocery store, you know, who are like, oh, yeah, I work in human trafficking because teens yeah. are being exploited and nobody sees them. Yeah, it annoys my wife every time she has to explain to uh, her friends and family uh, what I do because it's kind of hard to explain. But, you know, and my kids get a little confused sometimes. They'll say that my dad's a trafficker or whatever. Or, so <laughs> it, it is, it, it yeah, you get, just sort of have to watch how you phrase things. Yeah, so I use the term anti, <laughs> I would do a, part of the anti-trafficking movement. Anti-trafficking, so. that's, yes, that's an easy way to phrase it. It's true. Because even what I just said was not all that clear. So yes, anti-trafficking movement. That's fantastic. Thank you. So... Let's talk a little bit about trafficking in general and give people a picture of this. Because like you said, you had been working with teens and not seeing that they were victims of trafficking. And I'm guessing that we run into people every day. And especially if we are in environments where there's more youth, we're running into people and we're not realizing that they're victims of trafficking who actively need to be helped out of those situations, that they're they're completely stuck, they're trapped. And they're not going to come up to you and say, hey, by the way, someone's trafficking me. So yeah, that's right. give us sort of the, the landscape of what's going on in Indiana. Yeah, well, you alluded to this earlier as far as why I think we weren't recognizing these cases as consistently before in, when you mentioned that the idea that this is something that happens overseas, it doesn't happen here, right here in Indiana, right? And, you know, that was kind of my perspective uh, when I first started learning about this type of exploitation. You know, we do trainings all the time to, you know, hundreds of people every year. And, you know, anecdotally, from my experience, when we were first teaching people about how to recognize human trafficking in Indiana, their concept of what trafficking is comes from movies like the movie Taken. If you haven't seen the movie Taken, it's a couple of girls take a trip overseas. They meet this guy. He invites them to this party. And then essentially they get kidnapped and then taken to be sold onto the black market, never to be seen again. And then, of course, Liam Neeson comes and saves the day. But that's really what people think of when they think about human trafficking. And so the problem with that is if that's our only concept of what human trafficking is, then uh, it could be happening right in front of us and we wouldn't see it because most of the cases that we see don't really look like that at all. I'll give you a basic definition of what trafficking is, and then we can kind of jump into what that uh, looks like here locally. Sure. The federal definition, you know, a summary of the federal definition is the recruiting, harboring, transportation, provision, obtaining, patronizing, or soliciting of a person through the use of force, fraud, or coercion for commercial sex, labor, or services. Now, that's kind of a mouthful, so I'll kind of break that down. Essentially, what trafficking is, it's the use of force, threat of force, fraud, or coercion to compel a person into any form of work or service against their will, and usually for the the financial benefit of another individual. And so 
there are two basic forms of trafficking. That's sex trafficking and labor trafficking. Sex trafficking is something that gets a lot more media attention, probably people are more familiar with, but labor trafficking is just as big of an issue right here in Indiana that we we see where people are forced or coerced into labor and they're exploited by their employers who are trafficking them. I will mention one thing that's really important when we're thinking about the definition of trafficking mm-hmm. and when it involves minors who are victims of sex trafficking. So I mentioned forced water coercion, which are really important in distinguishing trafficking from other types of crimes and sexual abuse. But for um, minors, if they're engaging in a commercial sex act, so anybody under the age of 18 engaging in a commercial sex act, you do not have to prove forced water coercion. They're automatically considered victims of trafficking by our federal law and our state law. Because they're a minor. Right. And so what that means is that there's no such thing as a teen or a minor prostitute. And you'll hear those terms being used with minors, but they should be considered uh, victims of trafficking just because of their age. The assumption of the lawmakers when they were writing this is that there is forced water coercion involved because they are minors anyways, and so they don't have to prove that in a court. Yeah, it's a little bit like the statutory rape laws. There's no yep. such thing as consensual yep. sex under a certain age. It just doesn't exist. Yeah, so that's a very important distinction because that's there's a lot of confusion on that, and you'll still see these terms being used in the media and even among uh you know, professionals that are working with these victims. Say the terms again so we get them in our heads. It's, what were uh, they? The, the force, fraud, or coercion are the, are the three really most important terms when we're distinguishing this type of exploitation for other forms of exploitation. And then my, you said minor prostitute, or how did you phrase that? Well, I said there's, there's no such thing as a minor prostitute. In oh, fact, there we go. unfortunately, in some states, you can still be arrested for prostitution as a minor. But in Indiana... Our law was updated in, I believe, July of 2017 so that minors were no longer able to be charged with prostitution because we were recognizing that the human trafficking statute said these people were, these minors were victims. Right. And so why do we have this prostitution statute that says they can be arrested for what they're being exploited? Right. For? So we're not going to punish victims. That doesn't make any sense. Right. Exactly. But not every state has that law. Like not every state has yeah. that laid out. I think the the trend is definitely shifting. And I think the majority of states now have updated their laws. It's called safe harbor law, where you can't charge victims for prostitution um, because they are human trafficking victims by federal law. So, but I think there still are, I haven't checked the status of states recently, like in the last year or two. So there may have been changes recently, but. Well, I hope so. All right. So yeah, the landscape in Indiana, what are we looking at here? Yeah. So uh, I can share a little bit of data that we have. Unfortunately, with human trafficking just in general, we have to be a little bit careful about statistics because of the nature of this type of crime. It's hard to track. There's lots of different forms and lack of awareness, and the majority of cases go unreported anyway, so it's hard to estimate how prevalent it is. So that being said, I'll I'll give you some of the data that we do have for Indiana. With our own program, the Indiana Trafficking Victims Assistance Program, part of that program is, and it's funded through the Department of Justice, a Department of Justice grant, and so part of that funding goes to uh, a network of service providers that we contract with to provide services for victims of trafficking. And so we collect data on those, uh, the number of youth that are receiving services from those providers. And so since October of 2015, we have served through our providers over 800 trafficked or high-risk youth in that time. That only applies to youth 24 and under because the way we, we wrote for our grant, we, won't, we can't reimburse for over that. So we already know that that's only capturing a small a youth under the age of 24 
and also only those traffic use that are receiving services from our contracted providers. So we know the data is incomplete, but that's at least one data point that we have yeah. to show that it is happening here in Indiana. And then uh, the National Human Trafficking Hotline, which is run by the Blair's Project, I looked up their 2019 statistics. And so in 2019, they had in Indiana uh, 157 trafficking cases identified that involved 292 victims, uh, 67 traffickers, and 29 trafficking businesses. Oh, my gosh. So that gives you a little bit of a an understanding of, of how prevalent it is. But that's probably not the whole story because these are only the cases that we've actually identified. And most cases go unidentified for various reasons, including the one that you alluded to earlier, is that most victims may or may not recognize that they're being trafficked and mm-hmm. they're not likely to seek out help for various reasons that we can get into if we have time. Well, let's switch over there. That number that you just gave us, the 29 trafficking like organizations, that seems enormous to me. Like 29 in Indiana, it's terrifying. Yep, and those are just the ones that were identified. That were identified. Right. Oh my gosh. Ah, uh, it's like cockroaches. Well, let's move, Jeremy, before I sit too long in terrified, let's move into some maybe what people can do. So I know on the ITVAP website, which ITVAP is the Indiana Trafficking Victims Assistance Program, ITVAP website, you've there's some really helpful links. One of them says red flags, right? Or those warning mm-hmm. signs. Um, and I'm That's guessing, right. Jeremy, that this is a fair portion of what changes people's ability to see people being mm-hmm. who are potentially trafficked. So what are some of those warning signs that you find that people are totally unaware that this is a red flag and yet mm-hmm. it makes such a difference in being able to identify people who are potentially being trafficked? Yeah, sure. I can I can share some of our red flags that we identify. It's important to note that this is not a comprehensive list and that we're really looking for kind of the context in which these red flags occur. So it's yeah. not just like if somebody has one of these red flags that it's a trafficking case for sure. It's, right. It doesn't work like that. But these are some of the typical things that you might see in a trafficking case. Chronic uh, truant runaway or homeless youth, that would be a red flag. Partly that's because traffickers oftentimes target vulnerable individuals in our communities. And so if you're a runaway, if you're a homeless youth, that puts you in a pretty vulnerable situation, right? You don't know where you're going to get your next meal. You don't know where you're going to sleep that night. And traffickers know this. And so they try to target vulnerable individuals and exploit those vulnerabilities for their own personal benefit. And so uh, that is one indicator just because that population is in that vulnerable state. Signs of branding, this is sometimes the case in trafficking cases where the traffickers will brand their victims with a tattoo or some sort of jewelry, excess cash that they or goods that they can't afford, ID inconsistencies or someone else has control of their ID. That's a really important one in particular for labor trafficking cases. If an employer or a family member has somebody else's ID, uh, that in and of itself is illegal, mm. but that could be a red flag. Why do they have that ID? Are they using that as a form of coercion to control that individual? If a youth is recovered from a hotel, that would be a big red flag for trafficking yeah. because oftentimes commercial sexual exploitation takes place in hotels. So of course, in order to book a hotel, you can't do that as a minor. So somebody else had to book that hotel. Why are they there? Who are they there with? Especially if they're not there with their parent or guardian. Right. And that would be a red flag. Not knowing their whereabouts. Sometimes in trafficking cases, victims are moved from city to city or they're moved around a lot to go to wherever the demand is. And so that would be another red flag. Another big one, last one I want to touch on briefly is if there's someone with them that's controlling the conversation or dictating 
what that youth or adult is saying, or then that could be an indicator of, of a trafficking situation too. So when we think about red flags, we want to think about, are there multiple indicators? What's the context for these? And then we can talk a little bit later about what to do. Now, it seems to me of the ones that you listed that the branding might be the hardest to spot unless you're already seeing a trend. Because, I mean, tattoos are very prevalent. And maybe I watch too many cop shows, but (laughs) every time they see a gang tattoo, it's like on their foot or like up their arm or something easily disguised. And then jewelry, you know, is jewelry. So do you find that that one's more like less something that would be recognized by someone in the general public and more something that you guys would be able to track? Or are there certain things that it's like, no, this, this particular piece of jewelry will always look out of place? Um, it's hard to tell because it just varies so much based on the case, the location, the type of trafficking situation. I think the important thing for the general public to know is that, you know, if you do see some of these other indicators and you see some tattoos and you notice what that is, then and if you're going to report a tip, then you can report that information too. Because oh, yeah. that's not only helpful to identify the victims or the traffickers, but there might be other cases where they're using that same type of tattoo where they might be able to connect to other cases or something like that. So, uh, you know, for uh, service providers that are working directly with survivors of trafficking, we will train them. And, and I'll talk a lot about how that would be an opportunity for those service providers to ask more about the tattoo because you're, you're right. People get it for all kinds of reasons, right? Tattoos. Mm. And usually they have a meaning or a story behind it. And so it's a good way to not only build rapport, but to find out more about the nature of that tattoo and what it means to that individual. And that's really where a service provider could find out more about what that tattoo means for that individual. But that's not something that we recommend the general public. As far as red flags go, observing the red flags and reporting them, not necessarily intervening in a situation themselves, because that can put the victim and or the person trying to intervene at at harm's way, potentially. So that's why we talk about the response is to report that to the experts that then can assess the situation. And you've mentioned training a couple of times, and I want to give you some time to talk about that because I think that's really important too, obviously. But something that you didn't mention, but that I've heard tossed around in the context of conversations about trafficking, Jeremy, is grooming. And this, you Mm -hmm. know, earlier we talked about how these kids who are being trafficked and young adults who are being trafficked won't come up to you and say, hey, can you help me? I'm being trafficked for the most part. And in my brain, and again, I don't know a whole ton about this subject yet, grooming, I'm guessing, has a role to play in that, that they've already, it's sort of been trained out of them to not seek out help. Is that accurate? Yeah. yeah and, and again, it, there's a lot of different forms of trafficking, so it's going to vary based on the type of trafficking. But I think it's important before we touch on grooming that the majority of victims know who their traffickers are. According to our own internal data and according to a lot of the research that we see on this issue, one study out of Covenant House a few years back indicated that survivors of trafficking were reporting that 91% of them knew their trafficker, with 36% of the traffickers being immediate family members and 27% being a boyfriend. And so if we think about those relationships are with people that they probably have, you know, probably people that they care about, or at least people involved with that, like family members that they care about. And so that makes it more challenging. You know, if we think about domestic violence cases and how it can be challenging for those victims to leave those situations for a variety of reasons, you know, it can be the same type of thing in or similar in trafficking cases where, you know, reporting what's happening to you 
if it's a family member, may mean that you're removed from the home, you're separated from your kids. That might mean you're, a family member goes to jail. It also might mean that this could be what was normal for you, being trafficked by a family member. That's might be what just what you have known because you grew up being trafficked. And so it can be pretty complex. But just going back to the point, so keeping that in mind, when we think about uh, grooming, oftentimes the traffickers will be people that individuals know and sometimes that they care about a lot. And, you know, one of the myths about trafficking is that it always involves violence. And while there's often violence, uh, that's not always the case. We have what's called like a, a Romeo pimp or a finesse pimp that really utilizes his relationship that he's built or, or she, because uh, traffickers can be both male and female, uh, with the victims. And then that's part of why people don't leave because the traffickers try to, they use a very strategic approach to isolate the victims from mm-hmm. their other sources. And the goal is really to make the victims completely dependent on the traffickers so that it makes it even harder to leave. Yikes. A lot of manipulation, it sounds like, from that kind of situation. Yeah, and we can touch that really briefly on why victims don't leave. Often, you know, it's related to the grooming and the relationship that these traffickers build with their victims. But, you know, shame is a huge part of why victims don't disclose, just in general for sexual abuse or or trauma that people experience, but uh, especially with trafficking cases as well, because oftentimes victims are forced or coerced to do things that are not easy to talk about. Traffickers convince them that they... Uh, will be criminalized if they disclose what's happened to them because they may view themselves as engaging in prostitution, which is illegal, even if they don't recognize that they're actually victims of trafficking. Right. They uh, fear of law enforcement or the legal system, fear of retaliation from the trafficker, or it could be that they have engaged in past criminal activities because of their situation that they were forced to engage in. So they might have a history right. uh, with the criminal justice system already. And then just lack of trust uh, because of the trauma that they've experienced. They may have a hard time building trust uh, with others. That's so sad, Jeremy. All right. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the training that ITVAP has to offer? Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, we are funded through a federal victim of crime assistance grant. And so part of our funding goes to the training and education that we can provide. So when we provide training, it's free to the host agency that we provide it to. And basically what we do is we go through kind of a more comprehensive version of what we've talked about today. We talk about what is trafficking, what are the laws, what does trafficking look like in Indiana, what are the current trends, what are some of the risk factors, the grooming tactics, and then the red flags and what you can do to help. And so that's kind of our basic training that we offer. Uh, And then we provide more advanced trainings as well. And we have specific trainings for all different groups. We have one for the general public. We have specific trainings for you know, law enforcement. Uh, we have a partnership with the Indiana State Police. They're one of our grant partners, and so we we collaborate with them to provide that training to law enforcement. We can also provide training to service providers, uh, hospitals, healthcare providers, DCS, and then other industries that intersect with this issue, like hotels and that kind of thing. And you can get more information on that on our website at www.indysb.org, and uh, you can request trainings through that website as well. Okay, so we'll give them that again. I-N-D-Y as an indie, S-B dot org. Yep, that's right. And they can request a training. Oh my goodness. Okay, good. I mean, I'm glad you guys are out there doing the trainings and doing the work, but to even think that this is as prevalent as it is and going on in our state and happening to our youth and that 
Some of them don't even realize it's going on because it's what they've grown up in since they were born is so tragic. So we'll keep you guys in your work in our prayers, but also try to be involved where we can to make a difference, you know, in our daily lives and in our communities. So thanks, Jeremy, for mm-hmm. doing this work. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. If I could just end with one thing, if, sure. if people do see any of these red flags and indicators, of course, they would call 911 uh, if there's immediate danger to anyone. But if they see these tips, uh, they can report them to the Indiana Child Abuse Hotline, and that's 800-800-5556. And then it's important that they mention human trafficking because the Department of Child Services has a a new screening tool and assessment that's specific to human trafficking that they would then use when these child abuse reports are made to the Indiana Department of Child Services. And then uh, you can also call the National Human Trafficking Hotline and that number is 888-373-7888. I'm guessing that if people are, for instance, driving their car while they're listening to this program on the radio, if you Google human trafficking hotline, do those numbers come up? Yep. Okay. Yeah, and the the hotline can be used for victims too that they can call to get uh, resources and help. And, and we collaborate with the hotline a lot when they have cases that involve victims of trafficking that are from Indiana or in Indiana at the time of their exploitation. All right. Well, thanks for that information. And again, thanks for the work that you're doing, Jeremy. We appreciate you being on with us today. Yeah, happy to be there. Thanks for inviting us. This is Scott Kump with an I Choose Life news update. Jim Banks, Indiana's third district congressman and chairman of the Republican Study Committee in the U.S. House of Representatives, recently introduced a bill intended to prevent the Biden administration from undoing the Trump administration's Protect Life rule. This rule requires entities that receive money from the Title X Family Funding Program to be in a physically separate location than an operation that performs abortions. It also prohibits Title X funding recipients from making referrals for abortion. Rather than comply with the rule, Planned Parenthood dropped out of the Title X program, forfeiting $80 million per year. President Biden is expected to reverse this policy soon, sending millions of taxpayer dollars back to Planned Parenthood. Congressman Banks has also initiated a letter to congressional leaders, signed by 200 Republican representatives, pledging to vote against any spending bill that removes or weakens the Hyde Amendment. Congressman Banks explains. Let's be clear about what the Hyde Amendment is and what it does. Uh, It's been around since the late 1970s, historically very bipartisan, blocking taxpayer dollars to go toward public funding of abortions. I mean, this is something that every Democrat president, says Jimmy Carter, have supported. Even Joe Biden, as early as 2019, was vocally and publicly supportive of the Hyde Amendment. The sad news is that the Hyde Amendment is bipartisan no more. It has now become a platform issue for congressional Democrats to abolish the Hyde Amendment and these types of protections of our taxpayer dollars going to fund abortions. In addition, Congressman Banks has teamed up with Indiana's 2nd District Representative Jackie Walorski to reintroduce the Dignity for Aborted Children Act to ensure that the remains of aborted victims are treated with dignity and respect. The bill was first introduced in 2019 after the remains of over 2,400 aborted infants were found on the property of deceased abortionist Ulrich Klopper, who had practiced in the districts of both aforementioned representatives. 
You've been listening to I Choose Life News and Views. If you have questions about this program or if you'd like to support the fight for life, please call 260-471-1849 or go to ichooselife.org because without the right to life, no other rights matter.